Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, I'm your host today, Benjamin Phillips, and I'm being joined with Sarah Rudin, uh, the author of the new biography of Virgil for Yale University Press. Uh, Sarah, how are you today? I'm fine. How are you? Doing well. Glad to have you in the studio. Uh, So, Sarah, you've done a a number of translations so far for various publishers, uh, including a translation of the Neator, actually two. Uh, It was revised recently. Um, as well as a biography of Paul. Um, but this is the first time that you've teamed up uh, a translation and a biography uh, of the same person and work. Um, so you also tell us uh, in the introduction that you've kind of, your first recruitment into classics was with the Eclogue. So uh, this has been a long time coming, uh, your, this work of Virgil. Um, how, how has it been for you? Well, it, it has been 40 years of um joy in the classics. I I really love this literature. It's been the light of my life. And it, it was really a great privilege to be able to write a biography of, of Virgil um, after all of this time and to be thinking about the life of a real person behind one of these amazing works of literature. Yeah. Great privilege. Excellent. Um, so what Following on the heels of your well-received translation of the Aeneid, what was it that provoked you to finally jump into this uh, biography? Well, I I have to admit that I I would not have done it had I not had um, an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And people don't generally just have an inspiration and write a book. They need to have a contract, have have a marketplace, have a publisher with some experience in this, in a a particular subject. And Yale University Press has a series called the Ancient Lives series. Mm. And um, it's, I I think, um, proving very, very interesting. Um, Different, different authors are, are different modern authors are diving into the lives of figures who have been oh just plaster busts right <laughs> people who are you know don't really have any humanity in our view and um these these books are allowing us to consider commonalities that we have with the ancient world and um to consider the real human personalities of of great minds and i think that's that is very helpful especially at this political moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you explain that a bit? Well, um, a lot of this political conflict turns on an argument about what our tradition actually is. Mm. Um, and um, in the legal realm, for for example, um, you have various our arguments about what, say, the founding fathers meant, right. uh, 
and whether we should be bound by that. And when you talk about originalism, for example, you, you're talking about um, the authority of a personality mm -hmm. and a cultural experience over our, you know, present decision making. So that's a really momentous issue. Mm -hmm. So, you know, before we engage, you know, gung ho in that kind of a fight, I think it's it's really helpful to to consider the actual human parameters of people who wrote great documents. Right. Mm. Mm. Very good. Uh, just something that you've done uh, quite thoroughly in this. Uh, what, one of the reasons I jumped at this book, knowing Yale does good biographies, um, but when I saw it, well, Tom Holland sums it well on the on the back cover. A, a detailed biography of Virgil should be impossible. Uh, but he says you have um, rendered the impossible possible. As you know very well, there just isn't much reliable material on Virg uh, Virgil. Um, which was a, a big challenge in, in writing this, but I guess we'll get to that in a second. But in addition to that, have you found, uh, were there any other common obstacles surrounding um, who Virgil is or who we think he is uh, that you had to confront while writing this? It's almost nothing but obstacles. Mm -hmm. Virgil is a literary saint a political saint uh a, even a religious saint in in some eyes he has he um leads the figure of of dante through the underworld mm -hmm. in the in the inferno right <laughs> so we we've got a um superhuman figure mm -hmm. to start out with and um it's quite a varied superhuman figure. So um, in the modern era, Virgil becomes a stand-in for the modern Western imperialist. Mm -hmm. And the, the there's a construction of the Aeneid that is supposed to make us jump for joy about the imperialist impulses of, say, Great Britain or the United States. Uh, mm -hmm. More Great Britain. Uh, more European countries than than the U.S., but um, you have all of these um, strange impulses that are leaping from from the text, and completely untrammeled by any kind of realistic consideration of who this person was, who wrote the book, um, how did he live, what did he want, what did he dream about, what were his limitations. Um, yeah, so I think it's kind of healthy to have a, a, a real biography, even though a lot of it has to be, alas, speculative. Mm -hmm. We don't know anything much for certain about Virgil. Right. Um, so then what was kind of your approach as you sat down to write and think about and, and do the, the sober speculation that resulted in this book? Well, I, I do have a particular and limiting point of view myself. Mm -hmm. I've spent years and years of my life translating Virgil. Right. So I am looking to his specific language mm -hmm. more than to other aspects of his life. Um, so, or uh, aspects of his thinking, let's say. Um, but... Uh, 
I think that is justified. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe if that is not um, the proper dominant view of Virgil, that he was a poet, he was he was most concerned with words. I think it's healthy at least to take a look at um, this part of his life in itself and give right. it a full consideration. So we add it, you know, to other Virgils. Mm-hmm. So um, if we're looking at the political protege version, um, version of Virgil, okay, we could put that in one place. Um, if we're looking at the uh, ideological um an ideological idea of Virgil, not just, you know, what was he commissioned to produce, but what did he actually believe politically? Mm-hmm. Okay, we could put that in another place. Um, we can have a, you know, religious moralistic view of, of Virgil, put that in, in yet another place. I don't think we can make him a Christian. That just doesn't no. work. Um, <laughs> but we can certainly consider him as a pagan and we can s- consider him as a person who, you know, had a particularly Roman set of m- morality. Right. Um, uh, okay. So we, uh, but then, you know, I, I think he deserves, um, uh, his own um, uh, legacy, his own, um, I, I think he deserves consideration as a art, as an artist, mm-hmm. as an artist of words. And, you know, we have lots and lots of evidence that this is a role that he filled with, with some zest. Mm-hmm. Um, the evidence isn't direct. We don't have his statements or, or hardly right. any of his statements about his work. Um, but we do have, um, you know, contemporary opinions about what a, a fabulous innovator he was, right? And how much time and thought and agony, really, that that mm-hmm. he put into to transforming the Latin poetic language and um, creating something really striking, really interesting, um, an almost a new kind of literature, something that the world had never seen before. Um, you know, why don't we consider this? Yeah. We don't have to let it be our sole guide to reading Virgil, but mm-hmm. yeah, let's let's make this space and consider this. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Uh yeah, I is it I was reading some of your methodical statements. I was uh T. S. Eliot came to mind uh, when he says that tradition is not not just something you passively inherit. It's it's very hard work. Like the the the, the mindset and the experience of the actual poet who goes about grabbing all of this stock to make is so critical um, to understanding what he did. Mm. Yeah. Um and in in that one of your key theses is that personal experience is f- fundamental. Um you write at, at the very beginning that uh, a, a work of great endurance to which a particular era gives rise is not fundamentally about that era, but more about the nature of experience. And the author's insights into that experience come in such appealing forms that many readers take him or her uh, for a sort of companion and adherent. Um, that that was from beginning on page one, but mostly page two uh, of the book uh, for those following along at home. But as you're writing and as you're immersed in Virgil's poetry how how do you kind of decipher what 
is Virgil speaking out of his own experience and authentic heart? Uh, and what is a persona that he's creating for this task? Yes, that's a really, really good question. And the answer is um, it's impossible to mm-hmm. speak with real confidence about that. Right. We're always um, speculating when we talk about an author and um, whether you know any particular statement represents um the author's point of view or an artifact mm-hmm. you know perhaps the opposite of what what the author um is uh really thinking uh but um you know i had an idea which um has just been trashed by the Washington Examiner um, in in a very dismissive review, oh. um, and um, you know my my idea is that um, um, literary genius really is the thing apart. Hmm. And that's an unpopular point of view nowadays. Um, in past generations, there has been. Um, genuine worship of of literary genius and 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 often that has gotten really out of hand um you know authors are not gods (laughs) Um, authors are they're human beings no matter how gifted they are but um i think that gift is both um a very striking thing in itself and it has a great influence on personal development Mm -hmm. It, it has a great um uh, uh, um, it has great um, influence on how authors live, you know, even in parts of their lives that seem to have nothing to do with composing literature. Right. You say um, that Virgil gamed his life out to be a to be the poet that he became. Yeah, yeah. Now yeah. the Washington um, Examiner reviewer um, um, sneers at me for thinking that that authors are categorically different now i don't think that all authors are categorically different from Mm. other people but i think great authors are and um i have known personally known a couple of nobel prize winners Mm. and um i defy anybody to contradict me when i say that um people with very great talent in literature are different from you and me um, and maybe we can't pin that difference down but we can we can describe it in certain outward manifestations mm-hmm. um, and so when you look across you know the whole range of western literature i'm i'm sure this is true of other literatures but i don't know them um or not nearly as well um when you look across the the whole range you will you will see certain patterns you know not just in literary expression but in ways of life so um you know when you um consider virgil's sickliness mm-hmm. um it's it's totally impossible to say you know whether it was real whether it was hypochondria whether it was conditions that he aggravated consciously or subconsciously right um, that's that's something we absolutely can't tell but we can you know look across the history of literature and say wow or liter- literary biography and say wow um we got a lot of sickly people here yeah and we've got a lot of evidence that 
the sickliness didn't kill their careers, but may have actually helped them. Mm-hmm. And one mm-hmm. one example I like is Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Right. Um, so she's she's in her crucial years. Um, she's a pre-adolescent girl, and then she's a girl in early adolescence. And is she going to be dragged along um, every morning to her mother's social visits and spend all of her time chatting with the well-to-do neighbors um, so that she is well formed for the marriage market so that that she has she has perfect manners and she has she is sort of on display as a good um as a potential good wife for the sons of of the women her her mother is visiting um or is she going to get a chance to study right and she took that in hand um she she was the one who insisted that um um she was um debilitated mm-hmm. she was unable to take part in society the normal part that a young girl would 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 take to prepare her for the marriage market um and so um by by pretending or imagining or being convinced that she was sickly she made herself sickly she was she was in a quack uh um quin- clinic uh, for many months, and she ended up. Uh, she they they immo- what they did to to young girls was just immobilized them. Mm. So that'll make you sick. Right. Um, so she emerged quite sick and was sick, you know, into well into adulthood. And I bet what what she won from this was was leisure time, time you know, at her own disposal and the ability to study. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Nothing like solitary confinement to get you that leisure. Yeah. Yeah. So what what Virgil, uh, we don't know anything really about the origin of his his um, sickliness, uh, but we do know that that um, uh, people who were valetudinarians or hypochondriacs or or actually um, sick among the upper classes in Rome did get a lot of deference. Mm-hmm. We didn't even have words to say that such people were faking it. Right. Um, um, they just uh, very gently, you know, left them alone, coddled them. And Virgil would have certainly had this, this same treatment. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Were, were there other ways in which modern literary biographies have helped you or especially um, biographies of modern, modern authors? Well, um, I think they're they're um, very helpful in um, thinking about patriotism or not patriotism. Sorry, pay, patronage. Right. Um, uh, because we have had different forms of patronage mm-hmm. through the centuries, and um, Augustus or Octavian, the first emperor, was. Um, set on inventing a very high-powered form of patronage. Mm-hmm. Um, he seems to have, you know, got hold of some very talented people quite early in their careers and um, to some extent molded their output and their attitude and not um, disturbed the quality of their work. 
And he had a success that I think nobody else has had in the history of the world. No, no leader that I know of has been able to do this, this um, so well. Yeah. Um, so we can look at, um, much more recent examples of literary patronage and get some idea of the psychology of it. Uh, we can get some idea of the social mechanisms. How how does this actually work? Mm-hmm. And how does a um how does an author um who is very talented, you know, who finds a very powerful patron manage, you know, psychologically, emotionally, and professionally to um, um, keep up a very high quality of, of out- output when somebody who's funding him or her is is trying to interfere with the content and maybe even with the style. So um, a favorite example of mine is Zora Neale Hurston, um, the great African-American author She's part of the Harlem Renaissance and several members of the Harlem Renaissance, you know, found the same uh, rich, powerful patron who thought that she knew better than they did what authentic black culture was and how it could how it could be represented. Um, so um, Zora Neale Hurston <laughs> wrote a, a fake tribute to her her. Uh, patron and um, really makes uh, fun of her makes raucous fun of her um, but um, in a not in not in a really blatant way it seems blatant to us Um, but the the patron was so um, drunk on her her ego that she didn't really see it um the the so um Zornio Hurston apparently got away with this. Wow. And we have, I think, similar things going on with Virgil. He does not um ever seem to make fun of um Augustus, but he makes fun of everybody else. Um, um his depictions of them are are just too fulsome. Um, mm-hmm. I think they've got to be ironic. They're they're full of um, double entendre. They're they're um, uh, not something that you would write about um, uh, figures that you you really uh, um, uh, admired. And the thing is, this is a really interesting circumstance for Virgil. Uh, Augustus had all of these lieutenants who were um, amateur poets. Mm-hmm. Who, um, uh, some of them who who wrote very ambitious works and wanted to be taken seriously. So here we have statesmen, diplomats, generals, um, who were poets at the same time, and they they wanted to be equally admired as poets, um, but they were schlockmeisters. <laughs> um, you know, all but one, maybe two of them, uh, were not good writers. And um, you have um, Virgil making fun of them semi-covertly. Right. And, but that's at an early stage of Virgil's career. And then, you know, as the years go by, these, these people seem to have fallen away as pretenders to literary fame. Mm-hmm. One of them was actually, well, he got into political trouble. He was right. 
um, um, deposed from his, um, you know, powerful um, foreign um, office, you know, imperial office. Um, he committed suicide. Um, but and so, yeah, he was off the stage because he was dead. But others, others seem to have just shut up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I was reading some, some commentary on the 10th eclogue. It's all about Gallus uh, the other day. And it was written before we, we discovered any of Gallus's poetry. And mm. the commentator was like, oh, man, if only we had Gallus's poems, surely right, right. it would be so great. And then uh, the, and reading about what, what you said about it, I was like, man, the only thing interesting about this guy is that Virgil wrote about him. Like, well, yeah. you know, Virgil seems this is this is the hilarious part of it to me. Um, I was a graduate student at, at Harvard. This was during the 80s. Mm. So um, eminent uh, classical scholars of um the previous generation or people who had had been you know dominating the field in the previous generation they were still around and they were still revered um you know people like uh, wendell clausen for mm -hmm. for example um uh, dr shackleton bailey these are people with whom i was able to study great great mm -hmm. privilege wow. um nobody knows latin like these guys um but um it bowls me over now to think that they were fooled by <laughs> Virgil's ironic, you know, tongue-in-cheek praise of of somebody like Alice. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's 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 a bit mind-blowing uh, that they 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 took these passages at at face value. I I just can hardly believe it now. And then, um, you know, some of them actually stuck to their guns after the discovery of, of um, a really horrible <laughs> few lines of, of Gallus. Right. Uh, not, not um, you know, respectable poetry at all. Not the kind of thing that Virgil himself inspired, aspired to write. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, that kind of... Uh, <laughs> impressed me yeah <laughs> uh, uh so there is uh, one partial ancient biography by suetonius um in one much later uh by donatus that is is less trustworthy uh but thanks to suetonius we do end up with an odd case of well we know more about virgil's childhood than his adult years uh so what do we know about these earlier formative years and how what more can we piece into that picture well I, I wouldn't say we know more about virgil's um childhood you know in the in the aggregate but what we do have about his childhood is um some really specific um mm -hmm. information you know we know where he was born and where right. he grew up um at least until he left for school uh you know we know um the name of his father mm -hmm. um and we know his father's social background and that kind of detail just doesn't personal detail does not emerge in the later biography. Right. Uh, we have no idea, for example, where Virgil lived. Mm -hmm. as an adult. Uh, we, we know that, you know, he headed um, down to uh, after his uh, formal schooling was over, he headed down 
to um, the Naples area, and he was he was studying philosophy there. Um, but we don't have for his entire adult life. We don't have a residence for him. Mm-hmm. We don't have any reference to. Uh, well, he we know that he was a guest. He lived in a sort of annex of um, Mycenas's house for a while, but but we don't hear of him having his own residence. Right. Um, um, and this is a bit crazy. Um, it, it, it seems that he didn't return to his father's estate, um, his ancestral property, if, if you know, the family was able to retain it. Um, he didn't live there or didn't live there for any significant amount of time. He lived with friends in Sicily, but he never had his own home, mm-hmm. which is a bit mind blowing because you don't have homeless um roman aristocrats right you don't you don't have the couch surfing uh eminent roman author but that's apparently what virgil was it's it's um quite fascinating to consider you know what this suggests about his lifestyle his psychology and so on mm-hmm. so so t- let's let's get into that so what what does it suggest about his lifestyle and psychology like why would he not go after this standard Roman male career uh, and lifestyle? Uh, well, um, we do um, read and we believe with confidence that that he was a gay man. Mm. Um, this would, um, you know, impose certain anxieties on him. Um, he wasn't the accepted kind of, you know, man with, um, homosexual experience because it looks as if he had no heterosexual experience whatsoever um that that this was he was you know on the far far end of the kinsey scale um and not a man who would you know be able to have you know functional sex with with a woman so that he could have children so he could have a household um and um you know roman men were um, it was acceptable for them to play both sides of the fence as long as they were the active partner in, in you know, all the sex they had. Um, Virgil Virgil seems to have not been in this category. So um, his, um, you know, sexual personality had to be, um, I would say, well filtered. <laughs> Through the point of view of his friends, and we know that you know friends provided him with sexual outlets. They they provided him with with young slave or freedmen um, boys, um, and um, this was this was not unacceptable um, in in Roman ethics, right? Um, but I think you can see in his work, um, you know. A, a horrific sadness and loneliness mm-hmm. because um you know like all people he would dream of a a love relationship you know of the love of his life and of settling down not all people but most people mm-hmm. and um um this was this was the one thing that was unthinkable um for romans that you would form a household you would have an equal domestic partnership and you would form a household you would maybe raise children uh with the love of your life who happened to be of the same sex no <laughs> can't mm-hmm. do that 
so I think it's likely that that you know he would have dreamed of doing the one thing that he couldn't do um, hmm. in his his relationships and um so maybe that was part of what kept him moving um from you know one house to another from one um uh region to another um he didn't want to be known you know in the desires of his heart he he couldn't i think have these intimate and confiding friendships um that would allow him to be known in this way because his his real erotic personality was just unacceptable hmm. to romans hmm. uh, you also write that he, this you know pervading loneliness that fills uh, particularly the Aeneid uh, be- began earlier too. So t- tell us, what do we know uh, about Virgil's childhood um, out in Mantua and with, with the bees, you know? Right. Okay. Well, Suetonius, um, who had, um, you know, he was writing um, a long time after Virgil's death, but he seems to have had um uh, access to a, a contemporary biography or biographical notes mm-hmm. um, uh, that are lost to us. So we think that the, you know, um, information about Virgil's childhood is pretty good, um, at least an outline. Um, his his father is said to be someone of quite humble origins mm-hmm. um, who, um, uh married the boss's daughter um made good acquired land and raised bees right um and um yeah that because virgil has a particularly sort of outsized when you you talk about the whole science of agriculture that he writes about in in the georgics um beekeeping takes up a lot of room it does and it produces, you know, a lot of drama and emotions yes. because the the story of, um, you know, um, how to how to acquire a new swarm of bees, um, leads to the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, which is a you know heartrending tragedy right. about um, you know losing the only thing that makes life worth living, um, you know, losing your beloved. Um, losing your own life and your grief um and um you know even even the compensation of singing um you know orpheus was the greatest supposed to be the greatest musician in history it's mythical um singer um singing is not a good replacement uh for losing the love of your life in the story of orpheus and eurydice in fact singing gets you killed yes (laughs) yeah. <laughs> uh, so just just imagine this and and the um in contrast, you know, we we've got the myth of the beekeeper and see the, the Orpheus and Eurydice, you know, um shrieking tragedy is sort of inserted into the life of the beekeeper who has um you know he's committed a terrible crime and he's he's or sort of accidentally committed a terrible crime and he's lost uh, his bees are cursed, so he needs to get a new swarm. Mm-hmm. So what we get, how this closes up the, the the story, is that he gets his new his new swarm, 
and he lives he lives completely happily you know all alone with his bees uh you know cultivating um rural prosperity here and um so it's such it's such an odd you know glob of narrative there that it really suggests to me that that you know virgil dreamed of a carefree life on the land you know and coming coming from a rural area he knew and the georgics demonstrate that he knew that this is not a carefree life no um uh you know farmers have a lot of peril they have a lot of sorrow they have a lot of ups and downs and um virgil seems to have thought you know even with that you know this is the happiest life imaginable mm-hmm. um and he he has a portrait of in in georgia it's a portrait of this old man of tarentum yes. uh, market gardener who's living the blissful life of um you know um organic agriculture you know mm-hmm. this is all things that um you know he's naturally able to grow on a um uh marginal plot of land right um you know um delicious beautiful things that he can grow and take to market and he's got the ideal life there and virgil envies him mm-hmm. yeah 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 uh, but he's still a poet um and he's got to pursue that so so you kind of write like obviously this love of the land is, is everywhere um whether it's in his earlier pastoral works or in the aeneid um it's actually is this is kind of tangential, but my own research has been on kind of the influence of Virgil in literary responses to the fifth century, uh, oh. uh, and kind kind of what I was expecting. What I do find in some of these authors is why is this empire without end ending? Like why is why why are the high walls of Rome being coming down? Um, but in many of them, it's it's the landscape descriptions that they're borrowing in music. Uh, as they as the the poets of southern Gaul are watching their land um be ravaged by invaders and defenders alike, it's mm-hmm. that that's what they turn to. Um, yeah. which is e- e- easy to find those sentiments too, right? You write that uh, the eclogues, which are in his first poems, show that the relationship between the countryside and singing is symbiotic but broken. Uh, Virgil's calling was, however, painfully not here. Um, so why why after that he 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 moves to study philosophy, but apparently he he was something of a slacker uh, in that you're right. Um, oh well, how, how would that have? You know, I I I don't think he was an outstanding slacker right. about Romans with an interest in philosophy. Um, I I think that um for most Romans who you know claim to be philosophical adepts. Um, uh, you know, who retired to their villa to have philosophical conversations. Um, um, yeah, I, I think they're all dilettante. Mm-hmm. And um, with Cicero, the uh, motivation is more political. Right. Um, so he wants to, he's, he's in political exile. So he goes to his rural villa. And he depicts himself there as, you know, a a, a philosophical sage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's he's like the the um, uh, philosophical king that you that uh, Plato Plato dreamed about. Um, 
so you know he here he is he he and all his you know exquisitely refined friends are you know spouting wisdom about about virtue about um you know about um law about roman tradition and this is all sort of fitted into um uh, greek ideals as developed in in um, greek philosophy um, and these publications were intended to to sort of reinstate him as the first man of of Roman politics. This this um, position that he'd held quite briefly. Um, yeah, so so you have the political angle there, um, and I, I think it was more social angle for for Virgil. He wanted to um, hang out with men <laughs> in a um, a uh, lovely and leisured setting and you know have these conversations um i don't think he was going gung- gung-ho with love affairs because i think he was too timid hmm. uh, but um i think he had really a good time um down in naples as you know just hanging out with um other leisured youth and on his side, he was um, developing himself as a poet, and I think he he made a lot of progress. We've got, you know, collection of of um, work attributed to him. It is probably mostly fake, but I'm convinced that a couple of these pieces were real, you know, apprentice works uh, of Virgil, and they show um, that he worked very hard to develop his talent. Right. And maybe even that he was not a natural poet, but he he this is something that he obviously really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a he wasn't a wunderkind like um Horace. He wasn't just bursting with talent. Right. Um but he had to experiment a lot and you know find his way, you know, and find what his gifts were, took him you know, long years of experimentation, but uh, yeah, he certainly got there. <laughs> you know, by the time he wrote the eclogues, he was, um, you know, a strikingly talented young young poet. Yeah, yeah, and revolutionized it in the process. I mean, every every time I read a Latin hexameter from after him, I I just think like this shouldn't have worked. Like this this language and meter were. The meter was conquered by Virgil, you know. Yes, it wasn't yeah. supposed to be this way. Uh, Beaten to death and then sort of resurrected <laughs> in a godlike form. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's incredible uh, what he was able to do. Um, mm. so yeah, like he he eventually he finds his way to that patronage, to the I, I just love the way you put it, the, the fusion of reality and pro- propaganda. Uh and be- becomes the, the poet we all know, uh, or we mm. think we know uh, and love. Um you said that this was, I mean, you mentioned this earlier in our conversation, a, a very unique environment uh, in terms of patronage. Uh, what What is it that sets apart uh, the Augustan court uh, and Mycenaeus and everyone that they're kind of pulling in uh, and sponsoring? Yeah. Now, um, Augustus was a political genius and um, maybe at a level the the world has never known mm. otherwise at, at, at any other at any other time um he um he could read people um and he could make use of them without 
being so overbearing as to ruin them or certainly not in the short term. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was able to pick out several very talented uh, young authors and cultivate them, not with a terribly heavy hand um, and, you know, produce a, um, a, you know, concentrated group of talent such had almost never been manifest in the, in the ancient world. You might talk about the, you know, Athenian tragedians, but there were only three really great ones. <laughs> um, um, uh, you can talk about the Alexandrian, um, the Alexandrian poets, um, but they didn't, they certainly are not making, you know, any great impression on the modern world. Right. They weren't really writers for all time. They were very useful writers to to the Romans, but, you know, you, you read them and fragments of them and you're not horribly impressed anymore. Right. No, but, you know, these, these um, Horace and Virgil are, are absolutely, and Livy, they're writers for all time. Um, and you know, Ovid also amazing. Mm-hmm. Writer. Yeah. You know, and he, he picked them out and he sustained them and, um, you know, he gave them, uh, of course he gave, um, Ovid too much. He would have said that he had given Ovid too much rope. Right. Um, Ovid ends up in, in exile. So yeah. It doesn't always work out too well, you know, personally for, for right. these authors, but he, the, the work that, that he invoked evoked from them is, is, is fabulous. And, um, he even seems to have um, made large concessions, you know, to their personal needs mm-hmm. in choosing topics and choosing styles. Um, and he wanted a certain amount of praise for himself, but he um, uh, he had a great respect for their literary ambitions. Um, and I, I don't know of another literary patron who has really achieved this. Yeah. You know, Queen Elizabeth with Shakespeare, it's he's already Shakespeare when she comes to right. him. You know, she didn't she didn't find him. She didn't invent him. Um, yeah, there, there are others you can talk about. But I, I, I don't think that anybody anybody's achievement as a patron can compare to to Augustus's. Yeah. Um, mm. We're all the, the richer for it. Yeah. We are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we can't, we can't, I mean, we don't want to spend the whole time on this, but we can't talk about Virgil and Augustus without getting to the question, at least in part of uh, how, how to read the Aeneid in, in the Harvard school and questions of praise and subversion uh, and flattery and that. So what, what's your take on that vexed question? You know, I, I, I don't think I even address it seriously. No. Um. I I don't even think um you know people who have fought about this over the years are are maybe going to be insulted but um I I I'm not sure that it's worth addressing at least in mm-hmm. the terms that it's been delivered to us right um by specialist scholars um yeah but he was not concerned he was not yeah. concerned with the Vietnam War, like that. That wasn't his context. No, he yeah. was not concerned about the Vietnam War. That's that's one thing. 
um, um, yeah, I, I, I think that um, all this fighting over his political point of view is is not to the point. Um, because here's here's what I think about Virgil's ideology. Mm-hmm. He did not dissent um, from the basic ideas that that Augustus wanted him to deliver. Mm-hmm. And that's because um, it didn't make any sense to dissent. Okay, you you had two political camps. Um, you know, you had the the aristocratic senatorial Republican camp. Okay, and these were people who continued to um, strive against the um, Augustan autocracy as it developed. You know, as it clamped down. Um, you have them, and then you have you know even later on in in the empire under other empires you have rebellions, you have assassinations, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so so that senatorial opposition, it, it existed and you have really um, at the actual political level where people are politicians, you know, where right. they are maneuvering and conniving. Uh, yes, you have you have struggle and um, you have competition there. Right. Uh, very yeah. unequal competition, but it, it exists. Um, but, you know, as to the basics that that. Um, Augustus wanted um, Virgil to tout, there was not any dispute at all. You mm-hmm. couldn't be a Roman without agreeing with him that Romans were meant to rule the world. Mm-hmm. Everybody agreed on this. You know, Republican senators. <laughs> um, right. And, Augustus himself and his closest allies, everybody agreed on this. And the, and the, the um, Roman populace you know, down to the plebs. Um, they all believed that Rome was Rome was created to rule the world. Mm-hmm. This is not in dispute. Um, everybody believed that the civil wars had been atrocious. Um, you know, people who had suffered in them, um, people who had only heard about their horrors. Everybody believed this. Um, um, and you know there there are republican authors like lucan who right. who um uh uh believed the same thing so you know virgil um uh um he 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 just um effortlessly i think believed all this stuff that everybody else believed um uh but you know about the specifics of politics um he, let me say, passionately did not care. <laughs> right. <laughs> the passion, you know, was in his devotion to literature. Mm-hmm. Um, his passion was was in his, um, you know, own emotional life, and um, in the largely, you know, frustrating personal life that that he had. These are the things that he actually cared about. Mm-hmm. You know, he he did not care enough, you know, to be in rebellion against, you know, things that political things that that Augustine wanted him to to express. Mm-hmm. And he may have been I, I, I do um, kind of think that there were. Um, there was some resistance. There was some irony. You can find it in, you know, certain uh, parts of the um the Aeneid, for example, at the end of book six. Right. Um 
why is it that um Aeneas goes through he he goes to the upper world um through the gates of of ivory that only um admit false visions right you know into into um uh into our world into the world of the living um so you can sort of um yeah look at things like that and think yeah no um uh he was you know just as he had made fun of of um politicos who who affected to be competing authors just as he had made fun of them in the eclogues um possibly he's 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 poking at augustus here and there in the aeneid but um to to give him you know a whole political personality of any kind i think is completely missing the point right right Hmm. um he'll go through the motions um but um you know that that that's comparatively nothing mm-hmm. um, you know his his interest is in the landscape it's in the dramas that he he depicts and and you know so great dramas like the story of um Nisus and Euryalus or Dido and Aeneas mm-hmm. I think they're they're um completely independent of and maybe even defiant of any political program right no and this is kind of just my non-expert speculation but a lot of that conversation has been to to me at least it seems too too aeneid centric almost um whereas when i read the georgics what i get is all right he's he's here we've got peace again let's get back to work and and that that's that's the focus really Mm. Yeah, we've got we've got lives to live. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um yeah, you you make I guess we're, we're kind of running out of time here, but one point you make at the end that really intrigued me that I wanted to ask about um the Aeneid is something that he couldn't top, right? Uh and he's in this context of he's been asked for, it, he's producing it very slowly. Uh, and you kind of portray there's a, a, re- a reluctance to finish and a kind of what would I do after this? Um, tell us a, a bit more about that kind of facing him as he as he you know, brings his masterpiece into being. Yeah, now there are certain uh, there are different ways to to look at this. Um, uh, one is his perfectionism. Mm-hmm. Um. He left um another a number of um half lines in the Aeneid. Right. Um um lines that he just couldn't bring himself to finish. Um he was planning to go back to them. Mm-hmm. And this speaks to me of of an author who was um uh very meticulous about sound, about imagery, who who um uh about um versification he he wanted he wanted real perfectionism we could just look at his results and right yeah he's an exquisite author so um part of what kept him from finishing the Aeneid may have simply been um uh his frustration at not being able to make not being able to create the poem that he had in his imagination you know mm-hmm. something even more beautiful than the Aeneid that he left us. Um, so there's that. Um, and then there are more 
personal and disturbing motivations that we can impute to him, at least speculatively. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't really uh, a plausible work that he can um, undertake beyond the Aeneid. Right. This this was touted, you know, as greater than Homer. Um, and it's pretty clear to me that from circumstances and and from, um, you know, letter quoted from Augustine, Augustus, you know, um, prodding him along um, in his comp- composition that Augustus would have been, uh, you know, very happy with the 12 book in it. Even with the half lines, he maybe he wanted the half lines, you know, finished. Who knows? But uh, we probably did want them finished. Um, you know, he wanted to wrest this from Virgil's vice-like grip. Yeah. <laughs> he wanted it declared finished, and he wanted to be able to publish it and show it off. Right. And Virgil would not unhand it. Mm-hmm. It's been twelve years since Actium, for goodness' sake. Right. He he yeah. he wants he wants this. Yeah. And and Virgil, you know, goes off uh, Augustus is um, you know, absent on this long, long um diplomatic, distant uh, diplomatic journey. And while he's gone, uh Virgil decides he's gonna go on a big long voyage. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and he takes the manuscript with him and he said, Yeah, I'll finish it, you know. <laughs> um, um by the time this voyage is finished, and then I'm going to retire and study philosophy. Okay, um, uh, you can just hear Augustus screaming, "What?" <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, I say when it's finished, or I say when you sit down and finish it. Right. Okay. And at this point, I don't think it's hard to see a bitter conflict that has developed between the two of them. Mm. about how Virgil's going to spend his time, how he's going to spend the rest of his life. Um, and I I could see this, this um, manuscript, or there probably were a bunch of manuscripts floating around, uh, you know, but Virgil had the latest one and he had the power to declare this poem finished. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the manuscript itself or you know, the Aeneid state of completion um, as being a bone of contention that maybe got Virgil killed. Mm. Because think mm. about it, once Virgil surrenders a finished manuscript and declares the, the, the poem finished, what more leverage has he got? Right, wow. How does he extract subsidies how does he get his money how does he maintain his lifestyle he's used to you know a lot of traveling um he's you know entertained in the very best style in um wealthy households in italy and sicily um he's you know materially he's led a very nice life and he hasn't been dragged to rome all that often it looks like um um so what kind of life can he expect him for himself when his masterpiece is turned over? Mm-hmm. I can see this as a kind of horrifying, um, obsessive calculation for him. Right. What what does Augustus do with me? 
when all I can write is sort of footnotes to the Indian minor subsidiary mm. works and doesn't really need me after this. Wow. Um, what a haunting thought that that must have been. It must have been, yeah. Uh, well, um, in the end, it pursued him. Hold on, I'm sorry. Um, my my wife just called in. Um, let me text real fast. Okay, yeah, no. <laughs> um, you attend to that. Yes. I'm just right. Uh, oh, good. Um, five minutes before the end or so. Okay. Um, sorry about that. Um, no, that's fine. No, no, no. Making the note to edit there. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the end, uh, that haunting thought pursued him to the grave, as it was. Um, sadly, um, but thank you for what what you've done to bring him back to life in, in our pages and in our um, bookshelves now. Um, really appreciate you coming in today as well. Um, is there anything else you're you're working on currently that we can? Look forward to seeing from you. I have I have two books that I'm working on now. All right. Uh, one is a biography of Perpetua. Okay. A fascinating person, um, who a Christian who died in the arena in 2003. Right. And she leaves she leaves a a prison a, what's called a prison diary. Mm -hmm. So we have a contemporary account of of her, of the time leading up to her martyrdom. And uh, we seem to have an eyewitness account of the martyrdom. Mm -hmm. And these, these are put together in, in one document. Um, we don't have anything nearly as earthy and as intimate and as revealing about the history of early Christianity um, as these. Um, right. as, yeah. So, so. Well, uh, I have to have you back to talk about that one. <laughs> Yeah. I, I will be very glad to come back and talk yeah. about that. Um, the other book that I have in the works is a history of messaging about family planning. Hmm. Um, so um, it goes back to two poems that Ovid wrote about abortion. And it continues up to the you know 21st century. And um, for me, this is a really fascinating topic and, of course, relevant to to um, issues that are very hot right now. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm having having a great time with that, talking about, you know, Dickens's um, Dickens, Charles Dickens idea of the, of the family, um, uh, you know, um, other ideas, uh, two or three 20, 20th century um, authors writing writing about family planning. So, um, yeah, I hope I hope this will be an interesting book. Yeah, I hope so. Um, well, those are those both with Yale still or with other publishers? Uh, the um, uh, book on family planning messaging is is with Norton, okay. and Petrol Biography is is with Yale Yale University Press. So that's another one in the Ancient Life series, right? Yeah. All right. Well, now, listeners, hopefully if you've en enjoyed this talk and the book that go with it, you know where to, to find the next. Um, th thanks again for coming and uh, whether you're talking or listening.